These things are public goods, so we need to provide incentive for their provision. These agricultural subsidies are, in principle, a promising option actually to do that. But the way they are directed right now, they are not directed towards these things we care about as a society. When I'm looking at a tree and I'm like, oh, wow, that would make a nice IKEA table. I'm not taking into account that there might be animals living in that tree, that that tree might actually just support the, the stability of the soil, the diversity of ecosystem services, that that tree has actually been capturing a lot of carbon and keep doing so. So here, we're not respecting, not in the spiritual sense of, you know, giving respect to the tree, but we're not actually giving respect to the complexity of nature. As those values are usually invisible, we don't recognize, and it's why we are depleting our natural world. Welcome to Profits, Wizards, and the Quest to Value Nature. In this episode of the Foodland series, we're following the money to find out more about the ways we might value nature financially in our food system. So let's get into some numbers. What is the economic cost to damaging biodiversity and the resilience of the Earth systems that we rely on? Mm, Theo, it's a really good question. A report commissioned by the EU and the German government and released at a major UN conference on biodiversity announced that ongoing damage to our ecosystem globally involves a cost between 1.35 and 3.1 trillion euros every year. And that was nearly 14 years ago. In July 2021, as the world was prepping for another UN conference on biodiversity, they got a bit more specific and they upped the number. According to the World Bank, destroying biodiversity may cost the world $2.3 trillion a year. The World Bank itself warned that existing economic projections are too optimistic because they fail to account for a decline in nature's ecosystem services that's already happening. Basically, nature is not well enough to sustain our business as usual. But valuing nature better within our economies is worth a lot by itself too, isn't it? Yes, it's not just all a story of damage. If we value biodiversity better than we do now within economic models, you know, the OECD say globally that ecosystems are probably worth an estimated 125 to 140 trillion US dollars per year. And that's more than one and a half times the size of the entirety of the globe's GDP. So... The costs of inaction on biodiversity and these natural systems are high. A World Bank study recently said that stopping the conversion of natural land to other uses could spur an increase up to $50 billion to $150 billion by the end of the decade. During the last episode, we spoke about the current role agriculture has in impacting these ecosystem services and how, at the moment, according to the UN, still around 90% of agricultural subsidy harms the nature and the ecosystem services that we rely on. In order to make progress to avoid our sixth extinction of biodiversity loss continuing, we need to better value biodiversity in our food system. And there are different parts of society taking notice. The natural capital approach is at the heart of many policy answers worldwide to the environmental problems we face, including biodiversity loss. And recently, I don't know whether you saw, Alexandra, but China published an alternative economic index to their GDP. Mm, I couldn't believe that was China. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating that they're way out ahead on that. And private finance and enterprise, as we've heard, is becoming more involved in taking a natural capital approach. The Nature Conservancy recently released a report 
on investing in nature. And they tracked a growing number of private sector investors who are factoring environmental concerns like biodiversity into their investment decisions. Those are the reasons why we wanted to ask the experts that are coming up and who know much more about this than we do. What are the challenges of using the natural capital approach and data from these ecosystems to create financial support for farmers and people within the food system looking to to value biodiversity better. Professor Stephanie Engel, Humboldt professor at Osnabrück, gave us a really interesting overview of what natural capital is and how it's used to design schemes to support biodiversity in our agro-food system. Who else did we catch up with? Theo, we got a chance to speak to Louise Amont from the organization Capsules Coalition. It's made up of early adopters of the capital's approach from the business, policy, accounting and NGO communities. She shared her experience working across seven countries, describing how natural capital connects to other forms of capital and how businesses can internalize, become more aware of the environmental costs and harms to biodiversity that many currently ignore. We also spoke to Timothée Parik, a degrowth economist who thinks it is problematic to talk about nature in terms of capital. Yeah, we also talked to people with less abstract concerns on the ground. We talked to Sim Selis, an Estonian sheep and vegetable farmer whose farm regenerates eagle and newt populations. He spoke to us about what motivates him to support biodiversity and also the tricky realities of how conservation and business incentives can clash on the ground, even for those farms who care about change. In a completely different part of the world, Claire Buckerfield is a farm advisor at an NGO on the ground in Dorset who is working with farmers interested in that change as well. We really hope you enjoy these conversations and that they help you better navigate the complexity that's involved in trying to make a new economic system that recognizes the value that nature provides to our human lives here on Earth. To get us started, you hold a position named after Alexander Humboldt, one of the first to think ecologically and to think about how humans cause climate and environmental impacts. Are you inspired by him at all? Did you ever reflect upon that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Humboldt was uh, one of the first to realize and to point out how different aspects of systems, of social ecological systems, are interconnected with each other. and. Um, I would say this realization also motivates my work um, in many interdisciplinary settings. So I've been mostly at interdisciplinary institutes. Also this framework project I'm involved in now is, of course, an interdisciplinary project. I'm also currently at an institute for environmental systems research. So that's very much in line with Humboldt's ideas. And we cannot really distinguish between a social and an ecological system that the two are really interconnected. And I think he was one of the first to point out these interconnections, how human activities affect the ecological system and how the ecological system affects humans. Mm, yeah, this interconnectedness of impacts and dependencies. Before we dive into uh, incentive schemes and basically which kinds of economic models can underlie um, farmers' motivations, I was just wondering whether you could walk us through working with farmers and with the agricultural sector. Was it always obvious that you had to tackle the environmental crises that we face through the agri-food structures or did you have a realization? That's a good question. I, I don't think it was always obvious. I think my interest was broader, but somehow 
maybe because also some of my initial work was in in the global south and in countries where the rural sector was also very important and somehow yeah i ended up working on issues that related to land use a lot and i got a lot into these um, payments for environmental services as an interesting incentive approach in these land use issues and only more recently really we started working also on eu agriculture it's obviously a very important sector no i mean uh, 25% of the global carbon emissions come from the agriculture food sector um, the biodiversity crisis very much linked to the agricultural sector as well. So a lot of the solution also has to come from the agricultural sector. And I think it's a part that is often in environmental economics, where I come from, not so much researched. Um, so a lot of people focus on the energy sector, for example, um, and not as many on the land use issues and agricultural issues. So I find that very important and interesting to work on. Do you want to start by telling us how incentive schemes can reflect the kinds of values of the society in their productive landscapes? How do you think that incentive schemes have shaped our landscapes? Well, we can take the example of the EU. The EU in its common agricultural policy spends around 58 billion euros per year on agricultural subsidies, right? And these subsidies um, are very much shaped by what society valued in the past, I would say, namely securing food production, supporting rural development. And these subsidies largely promote output with only little regard to environmental impact. And as a consequence, they create many unsustainable outcomes, actually. So our food systems, like I said, already are responsible for around 25% of global greenhouse gas emissions, particularly actually nitrous oxide and methane, which have higher global warming potential than CO2. Um, also, the agricultural sector is a major contributor to the biodiversity crisis and also to water problems. So, for example, the region where I live here in northern Germany is a very strong example of how intensive meat production causes major water pollution. Um, but also over time, society's values have changed, right? So beyond food security and rural development, which are still important, we now also strongly value as a society climate mitigation, biodiversity conservation, water quality, but also scenic beauty from diverse agricultural landscapes. And, and these, these things are public goods, so we need to provide incentives um, for their provision. Uh, so these agricultural subsidies are, uh, in, in principle, a promising option actually to do that. But the way they are directed right now, they are not directed towards these things we care about as a society nowadays. We also know, of course, like food security is still an important goal that society also still cares about. But we know also by now that it can be undermined by unsustainable practices. So, for example, uh, monocultures and intensive animal production are much more vulnerable to the spread of diseases and pests. And also intensive uh, crop production causes soil degradation and the loss of pollinators. So this type of intensive agriculture, one can say, undermines its own basis of future productivity. So it also endangers food security in that sense. And moreover, also when you look at the distribution of these subsidies, it, this, this distribution is very unequal. So around 80% of the subsidies under this common agricultural policy of the EU goes to 20% of the agricultural enterprises, 
which really works against uh, diverse landscapes and uh, issues of rural development. So these issues and these changed societal values are still not sufficiently represented in the common agricultural policy, so in these economic incentives that we put in Valuing place. Valuing nature and making visible our impact and our dependencies on our ecosystems is becoming key. How does one go from data on ecosystems, how our ecosystem functions, what it needs to function um, and its dependencies, all the way to an economic model that would sustain mo more sustainable farming? So from an environmental economics perspective, we first need information from natural scientists on what are alternative management practices and what are the impacts on ecosystem services. And from an economic perspective, there are then two options to inform the design of such incentive schemes. Uh, first is we can aim to really try to value the societal benefits from the ecosystem services provided. That would tell us sort of the upper limit of what we might want to pay as society for such services. And there are a, a, quite a number of methods for such evaluation that exist. Um, but one also has to say that they have a variety of limitations. Nevertheless, they can be useful in some circumstances. But there is um, a second more pragmatic and easier approach um, that is to estimate what is the added cost for farmers to adopt the more sustainable practices and then to set the incentive at a level that just compensates that cost or just a little bit more. Um, the common agricultural policy actually compensates just that cost on average. And in theory, this can help to achieve more with limited budgets, but it's sometimes also not really enough to induce behavioral change. So I would say the ideal payment should be just above these costs. Uh, in order to also cover transaction costs for farmers of making the changes, a high bureaucratic cost also to farmers of, of dealing with the, all these rules, understanding these rules. And also this um, payment should provide a real incentive for change. But also incentives are not just shaped by public incentive schemes. Um, the behavior of consumers and of retailers also matters a lot. So I think we as consumers need to also realize that we are all part of the problem and we are part of the solution. And we cannot expect that food that is environmentally friendly is as cheap as food that is produced unsustainably. We need to um, also think about putting quality over quantity and rethink our own behavior. For example, a major leverage point for reducing harmful impacts on climate and biodiversity is to reduce meat consumption. And such changes, so less meat, more organic products, for example, uh, also have major benefits for our health, by the way. So that can be an, an added example, uh, added incentive for us as consumers. And also uh, retailers actually have a major impact. Um, they can put a lot of pressure, price pressure on farmers that works against um, sustainable practices. On the other hand, they can play a very positive role. For example, in the Netherlands, there is an example of a major retail chain that introduced um, standards for chicken production and influenced the market in a major positive way by doing that. Are you excited by the current interest from the private sector? Yes, to some degree. Um, I think these private sector initiatives are um, are promising in many ways and they, they can play an important role. Um, but one needs to distinguish a bit. I, I think, um, first of all, I think it's important to have well-designed uh, 
incentives in order to be effective. I mean, just one example, these wildflower strips for insects are very helpful, but if put next to huge areas on which damaging, damaging pesticides are used, their effect is obviously limited. So I think overall we need strategies that make agricultural systems more resilient and more diversified, and that requires more systemic whole farm approaches that contribute to um, climate mitigation. And I think both the private sector and the public sector can play very important roles in that. What are things that make you optimistic? Agri-environmental payments has increased a, a bit. There has been also this greening of the cups, meaning that um, a significant portion of the direct payments is at least made conditional on some very basic requirements being fulfilled. So those are steps in the right direction. But I think changing these ex external incentives, adapting these subsidies is a very, very important part. But the transformation also requires changing internal mindsets, mindsets of farmers, mindsets of consumers, mindsets of retailers. We often see ourselves as victims of the circumstances and we think that our own behavior alone will not make a difference, right? Uh, that's the classic public good problems where everyone has an incentive to free ride on others and think that what I do will not make a difference. Um, but together, we can change the system. Public awareness has really increased substantially over the past years, and that makes me to some degree optimistic. Um, I think it's now widely accepted um, that business as usual is not really an option anymore, that we need a transition. I think it's now widely accepted amongst consumers, politicians, and also farmers. I think most farmers realize that there has to be some change. Also, the EU countries have set goals for carbon emission reductions that include also um, the agricultural sector. So it makes it costly to not comply. And I think this creates a real window of opportunity for change and the pressure for change also. Um, another point is what I mentioned already, this concept of ecosystem services, I think has become kind of mainstream. And there have been a lot of these assessments that have shown quite um, well how sustainable practices and nature-based solutions can save society a lot of costs and can provide really economic benefits. I think that's also an issue that can make one hopeful. Actually, now in the time of the corona crisis, this has become even more visible because there are lots of studies showing that nature is very important for our health, for our mental health for and for um, our regeneration. For example, if you're in a hospital and you look out on a green space, you will heal more quickly. Um, if you walk uh, through green areas, nature areas, um, you can deal better with stress, you can deal uh, better with uh, or get out of depression, for example, easier. There are lots of these health benefits from nature um, and agricultural landscapes can play an important role in providing such mm -hmm. benefits. And maybe a last one also, I think an important development is also the work that is going on on alternative welfare measures. Um, currently, as you, you know, many, most countries use GDP to judge how well they are doing, but that's a terrible measure of societal welfare. For example, it rises, GDP rises with natural disasters because it counts only the work putting cleanup and restoration and it doesn't count the loss of natural capital. So there has been a lot of progress in devising better welfare measures. And I think such measures, if they would become more um, widely considered, could be a real motor for change also. 
I was wondering, you, you've, you were speaking about all kinds of different economic innovations and displacing this idea of GDP as a welfare measure um, and things like that. I was, I was wondering whether in, in this kind of ideal future system that we would put in place to have more regenerative um, and sustainable agri-food systems, you were picturing it as a, a growth uh, model. Um, do you think that we would you know, stay in this growth um, ideal Uh, economic ideal, or we would move forward into like a, a post-growth world? Yes, I think about these things. I don't think I have the full answer to it. I think this move towards green growth is the first step in the right direction in the sense that in the current paradigm we live in, um, we we should at least direct our incentives in the right way, like like I was saying, and really promote at least the growth of those sectors that um, help the environment. I think that's that's an important component. Whether in the longer run or maybe in the medium run already, we also need to realize that we cannot grow at the same rate is another important point. And I tend to think that the answer is indeed we cannot We need to rethink uh, the boundaries we are living in and we need to rethink uh, our use of natural capital, particularly in the industrialized countries. So this is really for the industrialized countries which have these footprints, people have these footprints that can just not be extended to the global south in the same way. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> I'm thinking of a stupid analogy, but imagine you're a car mechanic. So in the sense of the economist. So I'm a car mechanic that has suddenly realized that I'm stuck into my own garage with my car, you know, uh, spurting gas through his exhaust pipe. And I need to figure out a way of turning it off before I die. <laughs> so that's precisely the realization I, I had as an economist that somehow the functioning of our modern economies, not all of them, but specifically high income economies, were a ma major driver of the climate crisis. And so I'm just uh, trying to <laughs> stop uh, that massive ecological beating that we are witnessing in more and more severe manners. Economics as a discipline has only very late started to be interested about nature. In the birth of the discipline in 18th century, uh, so back then when it was called political economy, I think there was stronger connection between the way we study the economy and the way we connect it to the overall dynamics of society and the nature that surrounds it. But in the development of, of neoclassical economics, uh, which is today dominant in the way we study economics, we've been disconnecting the study of economics from the study of nature. And so what we've realized is that it's not only been an analytical disconnection for scholars at university, but we've also built economies in the real world that were disconnected from the reality of nature. And so now we have ourselves a double challenge of not only equipping ourselves with uh, theoretical tools that allow us to better understand how the economy interacts with nature, And we need to do this not only out of curiosity, but to 
help us in the grand task that is to redesign our economies for the Anthropocene. So redesign economies that would take into account that would value, we'd start to say, um, biophysical reality. Mm, what an incredible challenge. I've, I, we've come across one way of addressing this challenge, basically of recreating the relationship between economies and the natural world by naming um, a specific concept, which is the concept of natural capital. And so we came to, to you and we were just wondering, what does that term natural capital mean to you and how do you feel about it? Uh. Okay, I'm going to give a slight long answer because I think that's a very important question, but I'm going to start with the tragic and saying that I don't like the term natural capital. So now I'm going to try to explain why. Uh, that it's both an important concept and a dangerous concept. So let's just start with what capital is in economics. When we think of capital, capital is the mobilization of a resource in production. So think about anything that is being used to produce something else. If you're just, you know, uh, an object can be called a tool in the process of production, and then it is capital. Money that is sitting on your bank account is not capital, but it becomes capital when you start using it to invest into something that's going to produce something else. So now, economists usually divide, you know, between different forms of capital, natural capital, uh, social capital, financial capital, manufactured capital. There are many different ways. But when we're talking about natural capital, if we name it as search first, it comes with a specific ontology. So we could describe that ontology as being extractivist, productivist, perhaps a bit anthropocentric, in the sense of it depicts nature as something that has no value in itself, but that is just waiting to be utilized in the process of production. Um, Perhaps that also connect to other concepts we have, not only capital and economics, but I'm thinking of the concept of resource. When you think about a resource, you're thinking about something that has no value until it has been made into something else. And so the way we depict nature, uh, talking about raw materials in terms of livestock, of ecosystem services, it feels like we're treating the biosphere as an all-you-can-eat buffet, you know, just there waiting to be there to please and facilitate uh, human processes of production. And, and that's, I, I find this to be problematic because so far the biosphere, this biospheric crisis, the crisis of, of the living world has been driven specifically by the propensity of certain modern economies to accumulate beyond uh, ecological limits. So now just to name, to tag nature as something that can be used in that process of accumulation seems to me a bit of an ontologically dangerous step. And here we've not even talked about, you know, how we're going to handle the value in markets and the laws. We're just at the ontological ground or dealing with a relation with nature. And I'm saying like, it makes a difference whether we call it natural resources or we decide like, for example, in the Bolivian law in 2012, when they integrated some forms of intrinsic right to nature's and they called it mother earth. So now you can see the difference. You would not behave towards mother earth the same way that you would behave towards natural resources. It would be more difficult emotionally and culturally to go and exploit mother earth that natural entity, whether natural resources by named, by definition, they're here to be exploited. Uh, 
Same thing about ecosystem services. There's been a shift recently uh, from talking about ecosystem services, which is a, a bit of an engineering term, a bit of a neutral term, and starting to talk about nature's contribution to people. I think the renaming of um, all these natural assets or natural entities is the first step into better integrating uh, nature into uh, e economics. And then when we do this, it happens a, a very significant shift that we stop talking about ecosystem and resources in this very Cartesian way where nature is depicted as a smooth running machine. And then when the machine gets broken, when you overfish, when you burn the forest, when you change the climate, when you erode the soil, uh, when you pollute rivers, when you overfish, overhunt, whatever you want, then you just have to fix the machine. But if all of a sudden we talk about Mother Earth and natural societies, not ecosystems, but natural societies, I think we realize that burning a forest is more akin to genocide than it is to breaking a clock. And here at the ontological level, I think it matters. It does, and completely, but sometimes we get desperate for that ontological shift and and you know and we're just left with what kinds of economic incentives we can provide to the people who are on the ground and here we're thinking a lot about european farmers and this is how we end up with concepts like natural capital because for them to really be able to operate that um, ontological shift they need to have some kind of economic support um and I mean, I, I'm like surprised and like happy that we're having this conversation about the ontological shift with an economist. Perhaps we can make a division also between the use of the concept of natural capital at the micro sphere. So I'm thinking here, you know, at the level of, of one single farmer and at the macroeconomic sphere, you know, the way we measure the performance of, of a country's economy. And here, I think if you're a farmer on the ground and you've been offered this uh, very high financial incentive saying like, okay, if you completely deplete the fertility of your soil, we'll give you that amount of money. No far farmer is going to do this because they're going to realize, well, if you do this, then I'm losing what major factor of production. And, you know, whatever money you give me, I won't be able to farm after this. Well, then here I'm ruling out the hypothesis that the farmer could just take the money and stop farming forever. But what I'm trying to say here is that the microeconomic practice of farming is really embedded into a biophysical reality, which is represented in the link of farmers, of farmer, of farmers to the animals, to the organisms, to the soil, to the resources. And so here, when you organize a farm, I think instinctively, instinctively, the farmer think in terms of uh, what we call in ecological economics value pluralism. So now people, some people call it triple capital accounting as well, where the farmer is always being like, okay, well, this is the money bit. This is what I get when I sell. This is, you know, the price of the seeds and everything. There's some social capital. This is, you know, the relation I've got to the people that help me in the process of production. This is the relation I've got to my customers and natural capital. This is, well, the health of my soil. And this is, you know, the, the, the weather that comes to me. Here, my main criticism of natural capital is the way it's being used at the macroeconomic level. And here, I'm going to take a bit of time just um, because I think it's worth just getting a tiny bit into the history of how that concept of natural capital was built. 
And I want to talk about one word that I've got high difficulty of pronouncing with my French mouth, and that is the one of substitutability. <laughs> okay, wow, I managed it. <laughs> substitutability is an hypothesis uh, that has really been standing at the confrontation between two schools of thought in economics, one called environmental economics and the other one called ecological economics. Environmental economics is the application of neoclassical theory to the study of the environment. Ecological economics is an heterodox school of thought that was born later on in the 1980s uh, because it divided so much with mainstream economics. And here they all have two different opinions about substitutability, which is the ability of substitute one type of capital for another. In neoclassical economics, they have what we call weak sustainability, which means that in a neoclassical production function with several factors of production, one can be machines, the other one can be labor power, the other one can be nature. It's grouped into two. One is labor and the other one is capital. And so in this capital, you find natural capital, you find machine, you find social capital, but they're all by design substitutable. And uh, one of the first economists that really talked about that substitutability was Robert Solo. And I've got a quote for you from the 1970s where he said, quote, if it is very easy to substitute other factors for natural resources, the world can in effect get along without natural resources, end of quote. So now, this represents reality as depicted in a neoclassical economic model, where if you cut down all the wood in your forest, or if you completely deplete your soil, it's fine if you have generated enough money somehow uh, for the equivalent value of that thing you've lost. Uh, another economic, e economist uh, proposed like a rule, which now we refer to as the Artwick rule which is to say like it's completely okay to deplete the natural resource, but you just need to invest all the profits into something else, uh, like you know, the building of machine, and then it is fine. So that is weak sustainability. And if you follow these models, you can have infinite growth and infinite accumulation because every single time you run out of one type of capital, let's say no more fossil fuels, no more fish, no more forest, no more climate space, no more, uh, you know, ocean stability, because every single time you've created some money, so somehow you've just transformed, you've transferred natural capital into uh, monetary financial capital. But there's been a contending perspective, which is the one of Herman Daly, the American economist, one of the founding fathers of ecological economics, who's talked about strong sustainability. So he completely disagreed with that substitutability and proposed what he called complementarity saying that different factors of production are fundamentally uh, complementary. And here I'm, I've got a quote for you that I quite like when you say, quote, one cannot build the same wooden house without the timber, no matter how many saws and carpenters some tries to substitute, end of quote, from a text in the 90s. Here we come back to the situation of all farmers. A farmer knows that you know if you don't have soil fertility, you can have as many tractors as you want. You won't be able to grow anything. So from the perspective of ecological economics, which I use in my research, we treat production as a transformation. So a process that is embedded and limited by the laws of thermodynamics and the law of physics and biology. And so this is why uh, 
the substitutability can happen to some level, but fundamentally end up being limited. And so when we understand this about the concept of, of natural capital, we understand why it is dangerous to somehow use natural capital as a concept in economic models if it comes with the assumptions that came with it historically. But I'm not uh, arguing that this must necessarily be the case. I think we can reframe, if not the term natural capital, which is true, I'm not a big fan of, but the idea, of course, of integrating resources and nature in the process of production. I think I've been trying to do this in my work in the way we understand production and consumption always connected to nature through a phase of extraction before production and excretion after consumption. Whatever we produce comes from nature. Whatever we consume gets back afterwards to nature. Then the way we name these things is important, but the assumptions we make about you know, uh, what limits this process is really what matters here. One of the things that's been most interesting for Alexandra and me is talking to specialists who have devoted their whole life to um, the natural capital concept and hearing how tricky they think it is. The other thing that strikes us um, sort of journalistically from the sidelines is how long we've known some of the big picture issues and how long we've been capturing data on this stuff. And I'm just wondering whether within economics there's anything that thinks about big picture changes. I can give you a couple of examples that I've quite liked talking about what I refer to as alternative economy frameworks that you can find um, in economics in its periphery. One of them is degrowth. So degrowth would start from the hypothesis that somehow the uh, crisis of the living world today is a matter of economic scale. So that our economies are too big to be sustainably supported by ecosystems and that them getting them bigger is creating, uh, is, is increasing the strain and is widening inequality between the already developed global north and other regions of the world that still have unmet needs. So when we think this from the perspective of, of growth and degrowth or rather degrowth as a criticism of forever growing economies, uh, I think it provides a, a nice, nice ground uh, to then ask other questions about every single economic institutions. That, is that too big? Is that, you know, can that be sustainably embedded within the ecosystem? Is that fitting the laws of nature? You see how just this single little insight of being like, hey, imagine a world without fossil fuel is just throwing you into a, 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 a metaverse a thought experiment where you have to reimagine every single institution. And we can keep doing this. You know, I'm just giving you a last example, one I, I quite like, uh, which is called uh, Paricon for participatory e economics, which was designed in the 90s by um, by American authors, uh, they've tried to imagine an economy without markets. So now, you know, not everyone shares this uh, this view, which has been coined market abolitionist. Uh, but it's an interesting thought experiment to be like, okay, today we organize most of allocation of goods and services through the dynamics of markets. We realize that perhaps uh, some of good services don't quite fit market rules. And I think food product would definitely some of that. We definitely want to find a way of regulating the production and allocation of food 
so that it just uh, works in a more just manner, which is not the case today. I mean, as a macroeconomist, if I were to talk to a macroeconomist from another dimension or galaxy, and I would have to explain, yeah, at the level of the planet, we produce enough food to feed everyone, and we actually waste a third of it, but there's still like a lot of people that just die of hunger. They would look at me and be like, dude, your economy sucks. You know, how did you build this? So now I'm just uh, just an example of another thought experiment, you know, just no markets. How then do we allocate? Uh, what about pricing? How do we integrate the value of nature without letting this value be reflected in uh, market prices? All these type of questions that we now need to be asking, especially starting for economists that are not used to do these wild thought experiments, unfortunately. One huge aspect of degrowth when we're talking at the individual level of a household, if you want to uh, minimize your footprint, uh, in the top three is a change of your diet. This question I often ask myself every single time, uh, and I'm going to be asking it to our listeners, every single time you see something uh, that is being destructive to nature or that you yourself find yourself in a, that work being forced to do something that go against your value, very often you do this because somehow either you or someone else in the system is making money. Is their job. They're being paid to do this. So I, in my thesis, I've developed this analogy using Anna Arendt talking about economic banality of evil. So today we have a specific architecture where somehow we have financial incentives at the level of companies in the, in the form of profits, at the level of individuals in the form of income, at the level of governments in the form of GDP. These financial incentives that come to clash with a rather old and commonsensical vision of nature, which I've said it is the one we grow up with. You do not eat Bambi, you cuddle Bambi. To eat Bambi now, you know, if you're walking in the slaughterhouse, most likely you have no choice. You've not decided to work in a slaughterhouse. That's the only job you found. And so you do it. Now we know from sociological report that people, nobody enjoys working in a slaughterhouse. They're all being forced to somehow do this, but they do it because they need a job. And, you know, if they don't take that job, someone else will. So here's the dynamics of the economic banality of evil. Somehow through our economic architecture, we managed to do something truly atrocious to nature that no one would have done on their own. So now I'm thinking this is both a bad news and a great news. This is a, a bad news because, well, it means we have created a structural machine for exploitation, which is quite terrible, but it is good news because it means it has nothing to do with human nature. It has nothing to do with genetic. It's something that has been socially constructed, and so therefore that can be socially deconstructed. We can recreate another economic architecture that do precisely the opposite, where there is a healthy balance between financial incentives that just play their roles on markets and social incentives and moral incentives, and they all coexist. I'm interested in your, your Bambi and your sort of concept of nature ideas. And I just wonder, a lot of the worst excesses of capitalism, it seems to me from like a journalistic perspective, often come from people saying, well, this is how nature is, you know, it's tooth and claw, um, it's give and take, it's output, input, you know, this is what Mother Nature is like. And I'm just interested in what your view of, of the risks and benefits of, of kind of 
making analogies between the functioning of nature and economics um, are. You know, do you, do you have any thoughts on that? I've been quite inspired over the years studying economics, uh, reading um, authors in anthropology like Marshall Salins, studying pre-modern communities, uh, often in, in, in island uh, people or, or South American tribes, and the way they, the relation they had with nature. And here we don't find this kind of, this division we had in, in uh, Western history about, you know, uh, society being pitted against nature and man having to survive, uh, you know, among all the dangers and every single thing in nature is here, here to eat you. Mm. Um, now, like I'm thinking of the philosophy, the cosmology of, of Buen Vivir uh, in South America that sees, you know, humans as part of that natural ecosystem. So tribes that consider themselves part of the forest, there is no division between nature and between culture. They are just, you know, both embedded within each other. And that involves, you know, relation of care and relation of uh, predation sometimes, but it's always a balance. This is what we've lost, I think, here in, 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 with modernity in general, and most definitely on the economic side with capitalism, is we've lost the ability to set boundaries in the way we treat uh, nature. And the way we've been able to do this is by rendering nature abstract and by quantifying nature. So this is the, the first step of that process of in economics, we call it commoditization. You turn something into a commodity that can be traded on the market. And to be able to do this, you need to abstract it. You need to turn it into an object. I cannot trade you on the market because you're a person. But I could trade you if I transform you into a list of organs, into a specific number of uh, you know, blood or something, or if I trade, turn you into a specific hour, numbers of hours of work. So you see, I'm abstracting you to turn you into something that can be traded. And in doing this, I think... Uh, we've lost some kind of respect for the own dynamics of nature. In the same way, if I'm thinking of you as two walking kidneys I can sell on the market, I'm not really respecting your, your history, uh, your, your dreams, and especially the role that you play in the social system you're existing with, with your family and your colleagues and everything else. In the same way that when I'm looking at a tree and I'm like, oh, wow, that would make a nice IKEA table. I'm not taking into account that there might be animals living in that tree, that that tree might actually just support the, the stability of the soil, the voting landslide, that they might be a diversity of ecosystem services that that tree has actually been capturing a lot of carbon and keep doing so so here we're not respecting not in the spiritual sense of you know giving respect to the tree but we're not actually giving respect to the complexity of nature and that where it becomes very economic economics related to all the processes of production that nature perform climate regulation through for example the absorption of carbon by trees i mean that's a production in itself they are busy all day long, those little trees producing a vital service. And we look at them and we're like, oh, that's only worth an IKEA table. I think it's a, it's a severe underpricing. And here maybe we, we go full loop and we reconnect to what we connected with, which is the notion of how do we value nature? And here, in order to do this, we need to understand first that there's a difference between valuing nature and pricing nature. So, for example, when Bolivia, Ecuador, Mexico City, you know, include, give an intrinsic right to nature in their constitutions, they are valuing nature. They're not pricing it. 
They're saying, you know, that river, that mountain, that forest now is considered a subject. If there's a deterioration with it, this is not property law. This will be a criminal, criminal uh, problem. And in doing this same way, when you create, I don't know, a UNESCO, UNESCO heritage site, uh, you're valuing. That's the way we have socially to value nature by protecting it like this, but we're not giving it a price. And for other forms of nature, we can, you know, value the rarity of certain animals by giving it uh, quotas, hunting quotas, like they do to limit, you know, uh, to have a, a, a fair management of animals. Um, here we're not pricing. It's 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 also a, a, another way of allocating through quota and rationing, and perhaps that can sometimes be uh, more adapted than just uh, putting a price on mountain goats and just hoping that the market somehow will price them so high that not that people will not kill all the mountain goats so that they cannot reproduce. So here my point is that let's value nature. Yes, let's do it, but let's not give the test to economists that only believe that. Uh, only what has a price as value. Just give us a quick intro. When we talk about natural capital, it, it sounds like just putting some form of price tag on nature and natural resources. Is that what is involved? And how do you establish the financial value of nature? First, I think it's really important to, to frame the concept and to understand that no one is putting a price tag on nature and natural resources. Uh, because nature doesn't accept cash payment, basically. So it's not <laughs> possible to tag and to price nature uh, in, in that way. But what we need is to recognize that nature provides ecosystem service to industry, company, household for free. Um, but what happens is that uh, sometimes uh, some actors can have impact that are positive but also negative. On nature, in economic terms, those impacts are called externalities, uh, which mean that um, the business doesn't internalize the cost of that impact. So the cost is put on nature or on society. And what is needed, and and uh, it's why a natural capital concept is relevant here, is to recognize that value that nature provides to us for human well-being. It can be a provision uh, of food, water, regulation services as uh, uh, climate regulation or temperature regulation, cultural uh, services as having park or a green area uh, to go, and so on. As those values are usually invisible, we don't recognize, and it's why it, we are depleting somewhere our natural world. Um, when we start to have framework to measure those impact and dependency and to make that value visible in business performance, in reporting, in accounting, then uh, it's easier to recognize nature value and to make sure that we are uh, maintaining or restoring natural capital and not depleting it. Um, so, so that's 
all about our work uh, in Capitals Coalition uh, to, to show the differences between putting a price tag and just recognizing the value of nature. Um, you work on a lot of these natural capital projects all over the world on projects related to the agri-food industry, but you're initially from Europe. Do you ever think that would be possible to apply the same mindset to the whole European agri-food sector? Yes, uh, there is many ways and there is already some front runner, uh doing that. They do what we call um, integrated profit and lost account. So they exactly look through the natural capital, but also the other capital. So what we call the social and human capital and look where they are doing uh, some profit or where they are doing some or where they have some loss, but not only on financial term, but on those form of capitals. Uh, who are other form of assets. That's really interesting to see how it uh, improved decision-making. Uh, we see also the One Planet for Business uh, Biodiversity, which is a coalition of uh, big uh, agri-food companies um, in, in Europe, uh, but also worldwide, that use also our framing to plan a transition to regenerative agriculture. So I think that's that's great to see how it can be applied. I think they are led by Nestle, uh, but they have like Danone, for example. Um, they are supported by the World Business Council, with who we work closely to, uh, and many other big corporations. And what's really interesting about the Capital Coalition is that it's really not just about natural capital, right? You're using the, the concept of capital, but really it includes natural capital, human capital, social capital, and also produced capital. Do you want to walk us through why these different facets are important and how you work with all of them simultaneously? First, natural capital for us is really the stock of renewable and non-renewable natural resources. Then we have what we call the social capital networks together with shared norm, value and understanding that facilitate cooperation within and among groups. Without social capital, we, we won't be able to, to work together. Then there is the human capital, which is the knowledge, the skill, the competency and attributes embodied in individuals that contribute to improved performance and well-being. So, for example, dimension of uh, human capital is health of the employee or working condition um, or living wage, for example, and how we can um, frame a better well-being for those people. And then we have the produce capital, which is basically the economy as we understand it, uh, the human-made good and financial asset that are used to produce goods and services consumed by society. Usually, uh, the financial system, economic system, understand what is produced capital, but doesn't understand very well the natural capital and social and human capital pieces. It's important for company to understand the impact on all, because uh, it, if a company, just to provide an example, say, we create a lot of job, and that's great. Uh, we're providing livelihood and uh, people uh, have incomes. So let's say that's a positive impact. But if that at the same time they are having more greenhouse gas emission, um, we don't define that exactly as successful because there is trade-off uh, between those capitals. So 
for us, it's really important to to look in an integrated manner to those capitals. So the business can uh, uh, make decision, for example, if they choose uh, to have a new product or to expand to a new country, they can make uh, assessments, scenarios, and choose the one who will deliver the greatest value across the capital without or minimizing the trade-off between them. Louise, I'm going to ask you a last question. And this one is a cheeky one, but it's because the rest of our our episode is going to be um, addressing these questions. Do you think that in this future world where people in nature are equally accounted for with produced capital by the businesses, the financial institutions and the governments, do you think that in that world there will still be GDP growth? Uh, that's a very good question. Maybe, but it will probably not be the only measure of success. And maybe it will be a measure of GDP, but maybe it won't be growth. Um, for example, uh, we just had a session with China, which is quite advanced, more than we thought, on um, those uh, natural capital accounting. And they have the gross ecosystem product. And they take that as an alternative uh, and a complementary, I would say, uh, measure of success. They call the it gross ecosystem. Gross ecosystem product. Wow. We have the DHI, the Development Human Index, but we don't have a measure standardized around the world for the health of our natural world. And natural capital accounting somewhere is coming for that. And the way Chinese uh, adopt it is through that gross ecosystem product. And this is part of um, the application of the new format from uh, the United Nations office that I mentioned earlier. Which itself is based on the capital's approach. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mainly on natural capital for now, but there are opening the mind uh, more and more to social and human capital. Um, and the World Bank is looking to that. The World Bank now, every year or every two years, they have a natural capital policy forum to shape the state of our natural capital asset and how we can make sure that we're on track and not depleting more, but restoring more um, that natural world. So I guess that's a lot of great news. Yeah. <laughs> Plugged into the Capitals Coalition radio to hear good news in this world. <laughs> there are are a lot of different species compared to the later situation where there was just maybe five species. And now uh, there's this um, aim to get as much as possible of this uh, old semi-natural grasslands, uh, get, get them back to the state where they, where they were. Some of these grasslands, they were last plowed in end of Soviet time and are uh, uh, then, then they have been left alone. Just, just the grass has been cut and the 
hay collected or it or or grazed or whatever. Uh, so the their uh, diversity is slowly increasing again. The natural species are coming back. There's uh, still seeds in the soil that are emerging again. Uh, but in order to increase this uh, biodiversity, usually the grass has to be cut not too early in summer, because then the natural plants can uh, flower and seed properly. Cultivated species, they are normally selected as, as fast growing as possible, and they, that they could be cut for hay or silage as, as uh, early as possible, so that there's also room for a second and maybe third cut. But, but uh, of course, if you wait for all of these plants to flower, the natural plants, the quality of the feed you get from this uh, field is much lower than if you cut your hay uh, earlier. It, it would be a logical thing to cut early if you want to get food, good feed. But, uh, but on this uh, semi-natural grasslands, there's normally there's a date being set that uh, you can't cut before. I think for us it was July seventh, maybe or, or July fifth. Mm. You, you can't you can't cut before that if you want to get this subsidy. And that's what my my father didn't uh, understand at first. Was it your mom, or is it the subsidy that convinced him? As he is a conservationist by himself, he, <laughs> he trusted them. So, yeah. so there, was, there wasn't much convincing, it's just explaining. I mean, he's, he's correct too. There is no point to cut this hay so late if you want to get good feed. So there, there's, there's, there has to be a way to um, overcome this problem. Like if, if you want to get uh, good animals, like uh, according to modern standards, you need to give them good feed. You, it, it's impossible to cut all your hay on uh, 5th of July and hope that you get really good livestock. So, so there has to be a, uh, some, somewhere there has to be a piece of land that is, uh, is cultivated and uh, that gives better yields, I think. Maybe that's where the hope is, that this practice spreads enough for there to be like a little bit more of a middle way, that it, has, that it becomes less radical. Well, there, there are small uh, improvements happening. I, I see that uh, some people are willing to pay more for the meat that is coming from the semi-natural grass, grassland, but it's 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 still like um, such a small percentage. Basically, for for uh, farmers, there are some crazy people in the city who are willing to pay more. <laughs> I was gonna wonder whether you guys have neighbors that are also farmers and how you guys relate to each other. Do, do they kind of agree on biodiversity? How, how, do you, how does your perspective compare to theirs? There are, I, th I think there are different opinions. All of our neighbors that are farmers, they are crops uh, growers. And uh, they are, uh, well, they have some uh, part, maybe organic, because of the higher subsidies, because of the land is too bad, they can't get any any uh, good yields anyway, so they rather make it organic to get more subsidies, basically. So so uh, mm. that's, that's where I see that um, if you pay people to 
be more environmentally friendly, they are happy to follow <laughs> without paying. I, I, I truly can't see like them being very happy about like, doing something for for environment. If it's a small thing that doesn't cost anything, then okay, yeah, of course, they are not opposed, I guess. But uh, but if it's if it uh, costs uh, their time or uh, even more money, then uh, it's uh, it's hard to win win their win them on the on this side. How are these neighboring farmers looking at you and your family's farm? <laughs> we are we are kind of customers. Uh, we don't have big machinery ourselves, so sometimes if we need something, then we just uh, call them to do the work for us and pay for it. And uh, and uh, the other thing is, it's like kind of uh, quite small community here. Uh, everybody knows everybody. They are they have been uh, schoolmates, classmates. And of course, people people are different, but normally there's not much tension here. Everybody can do what they want. I would say we have, we, uh, we have one neighbor that is <laughs> just uh, just uh, farming for subsidy, no yield at all. Like he's just uh, um, one, once I was uh, cutting hay for me, and I didn't understand where where is the border between our land and his. His land was, uh, I guess, uh, barley field. But but if you see, if if I look at that, I don't understand where is the hay ending and barley beginning. <laughs> but <laughs> they just uh, uh, put some barley seeds on the ground, for example, and uh, something grows. And if they are lucky and the uh, control doesn't show up, they just get a subsidy. And uh, I think. Uh, the the real farmers around here they 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 see these people uh, more as a joke than than they think of us because we are still producing. I'm not talking about the people who are flouting the scheme and the rules. I and mean, all those people, everybody would agree. Every farmer, good farmer, would agree. Those people need need to be, you know, found and and dealt with appropriately. But most most farmers are doing the best they can. This might be me being losing my my sense of journalistic balance a bit and becoming biased for a second. But it strikes me that at times there's been a lot more paperwork and almost not regulatory scrutiny, but you know what I mean, in terms of eco schemes and so, and so on. Then, I mean, it took years for regulation to catch up with some of the damaging impacts of the, in, in other ways, very beneficial, you know, chemical um, inputs and management tools and so on. So it's interesting to me that it took ages for the regulation to catch up with those aspects of farming. And yet, right from the get go, there's a lot of scrutiny of eco schemes and a lot of scrutiny of, of the green methods. Is that a fair summary or is that me losing my oh. journalistic balance? <laughs> no, I would agree. It is heavily scrutinised. Mm. Um, and a lot of it in um, recent years has been been have you got enough of this thing that we're paying you for so a lot of measuring but 
not really so much looking at whether the the slightly smaller area is doing a good job, an okay job, or a terrible job of the thing it's meant to be doing. And surely that's more important than whether it's 0.01 of a hectare too small, which is sometimes what we're talking about. They might have misunderstood something. Their ruler might measure things slightly differently to the RPA's ruler. Um, but it doesn't merit the scrutiny and the chasing of, you know, repayments. That, and that's what's led to this, this sort of fear factor and stops people trying stuff. And we, how do we learn? We try stuff, don't we? That's how we learn. Yep. We get it right, yep. we get it wrong. And there is a shift in philosophy now in the last couple of years, thankfully, to try and reduce that burden. It's Sometimes it's as simple as just the tone of things. When you start reading words like breach, when all somebody's done is um, had their field parcel reduced by a tiny, tiny amount of a few square metres. Um, and it just doesn't it doesn't inspire people to try new things and innovate um and experiment by themselves because they're inevitably worried that that's going to impact on what they said they were going to do or what they should do um and if farmers are in an agri-environment scheme there is the ability to apply for a, a what we call a derogation to change something but there's a there's a form that has to be filled in and a form that has to be logged and those things those processes understandably take time but farmers you know they're responding to weather responding to chance thing that's come by and they don't necessarily have time to wait for that process to play out so i see it every day what does that look like day to day what makes you the most hopeful about the future of more biodiverse farming so sadly, I have to say that increasingly it's looking more like my computer and my keyboard than it did 20 years ago. Um, but I still do probably spend about half of my time out on farm there as an, an advisor, helping them look at something they want to look at in relation to the environment on their farm or undertaking field work to survey the farm. Maybe that's um, a habitat survey, which is what I really like to do. But increasingly, as the focus is shifting to our rivers and water quality um, and soils, also undertaking what we call wet weather surveys. So looking at farms when it's really, really pouring with rain um, and helping to identify where there might be issues that I can then go back and work alongside the farmer to address, to help them improve the, the the river environment and the soils on the farm alongside the habitat work but very much now looking more for where the habitat management and habitat creation can also help deliver something else whether that's better soils better water quality or indeed carbon storage or something else um, the phrase that we use all the time is multi-benefit farmers care that's really important but they do care and they're really interested given the chance that you know they're leading the way with things where where they're in a situation where they can they can do that um we need to give them the space to do it but equally need to give them the structure because not everybody is an innovator there are leaders and there are followers everywhere aren't there so there needs to be the space for the for the the radicals to to, to come up with the 
the, the new best way to do things. And then the structure needs to move quickly behind it so that other people can can get on board and 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 have the guidance they need. The new environmental land management scheme, I think, has certainly got some elements to it that can help with a lot of what we've talked about, but it mustn't get bogged down in paperwork and form filling. And it mustn't be so rigid that it puts people off. And there's a danger of that, I think. Thinking of paperwork, we've been talking to some people who are coming at this from more of the data end. What, what happens to the data that you generate? Does that eventually become accessible to the farmer or to farmers? Where does all that data sort of flow into? So it very much depends on what you're what we're sort of doing it for at that time. Um, but yeah, it's something that I'm very conscious of. Um, a criticism that has been levelled at people doing jobs similar to me in the past is you come here, you have a look and then I don't know what you found. So I'm always very conscious of trying to feed uh, feed it back to the farmer, either specific to their farm or the um, the outcome of the survey. If we're actually looking at a, a wider scale and um, and then that data itself might end up going to the local record centre, the Dorset Environmental Record Centre, through something called Living Record, um, or to, you know, if it's a project, whoever's collaborating that data for the project. Do you feel there's enough support for people in roles like yours? I've been talking to some people who are saying that there's more private finance available, schemes are changing. I mean, there is support. Um, but it's often quite hard to access and you can spend a, an awful lot of time trying to access resources to fund this sort of role, which would be better spent doing the job. I don't think enough value is placed on the role that advisors play and the importance of continuity and keeping people in post. The trouble with projects is, you know, they have a lifetime, they finish but the farmer's still there, the farm's still there. And if that person can still be there that's working with those farmers, so much the better. And it's, it's, it's trying to find ways to keep that continuity. Obviously, people move on and people's lives change, but there, there are a lot of people who move on because the job runs out rather than anything else. And I think yeah. that would be good to address. Yeah, it interests me that there's a lot being asked of many of these research scientists on EU projects where they almost have to train and become almost extension officers, facilitators, whatever you want to call it, on a project by project basis in some organisations. What would you say the benefits are of of having continuity? I think it comes down to trust. I guess it strengthens the, the power of that advice because it's coming from somebody you trust. You know they're giving it to you in good faith, not because the the project or the 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 person grant funding it has asked you to come out and and provide that advice um mm. and farmers are often quite you know traditional and community is important to them so if it is somebody that they know is part of their community you know it, mm. it adds strength i think to draw their attention to somebody else you know sort of up the road that they might not know that's done something similar that has or hasn't worked so you can you can reference things locally which really help 
no two farmers are the same. <laughs> um, and um, I like um, sort of getting to, to know them um, and building a, a, you know, a working relationship with them over over the years. There's a lot of farms, you know, I've been working on for, for nearly 20 years and I've really enjoyed seeing things change on those farms. You sort of get a bit of proud feeling sometimes when you're driving past somewhere and you look across and you you see something maybe it's some trees have been planted or a, a hedge has gone in or you can see they're doing some cover crops something different that's better and seeing that change for the better and seeing that that improvement it's quite you know you feel proud it's quite motivating um, and that's what it's all about really for me is making things happen on the ground mm. I recognize the importance of the data collection to help us measure the impact of that change but for me the um, enjoyment comes from seeing that change in the landscape because I mm. I live where I work. We've spoken to a few guests who say going forward looking at it from a kind of landscape ecological perspective maybe having something based on geographical type understandings of agroecosystems and landscapes rather than the type of farming practices that are taking place within them do you find that useful to look at places based on their almost geographical climatic kind of context? Definitely, actually. Yeah, I do. And in recent years in England, we've moved through the sort of drive to look at water quality. We've moved much more into thinking about catchments and subcatchments. And I find that it is easier to sort of <laughs> coalesce around a water body but that's just an example of how you can categorize a landscape so yeah definitely I think so people would much more identify with their neighbors than with somebody else just because they happen to also be a sheep farmer yeah that's interesting and and also you're kind of letting them into the context which you're working in as an advisor as well thinking about going and having a look what activities are you undertaking for the framework project uh, sort of on the ground Okay, so it's um, it's brilliant, actually. So it's given me the opportunity. So the cluster where I'm working, at least half of those farmers, there's 19 farmers in the cluster, at least half of them I already knew and had worked with them in some respect or another um, in the past. Um, so um, I've had the opportunity to visit all the farms um, to start mapping the existing habitats. And we're now starting to think about what changes they can make over the next few years of the framework project to better manage those habitats, better link up those habitats and provide more habitat, but also where they've got habitat, better habitat um, for the species that they're particularly that they are particularly interested in targeting. And I stress that point because it is very much the cluster is very much led by them what motivates and interests them as a group rather than what anybody's telling them they should be interested in or motivated by the presenting sponsor of the foodland season is the framework project an eu-funded project helping localities to value biodiversity in our food system ever a surprise to farmers who haven't thought in that way the power they have over what our countryside looks like and what lives there in many ways what biodiversity is there do you ever see anyone have a moment where they think 
wow, actually, I'm being asked here, you know, what species exist on my land? Um, does that ever happen? There's light bulb moments where you can see it, something clicks. Um, but um, I don't know that I've ever felt that they realise how much influence they can have over biodiversity and the environment on their little piece of it. I suppose we're all guilty of that, aren't we? It sort of it's so familiar it starts to get taken for granted very quickly, doesn't it? <laughs> um, maybe that's what it is. Yes, it's kind of like a much bigger version of just, yeah, the consumer challenges we all face, I guess. It's interesting. So um, brown hare, which is quite a sort of iconic English countryside species, aren't they? I mean, they're um, to a penny, really, in the cluster, particularly at the eastern side of the cluster. But um, there was a local and they were very concerned that there weren't very many hares and that they'd only found sort of a handful of records. And, you know, it, it was met with amusement by the group when that was reported in because we see them I mean, there's, there's a lot of brown hair um but i think they didn't for them they didn't realize because they take them for granted because they see them every day because they're there every day and so are the hairs are there every day they sort of yeah didn't realize how special that might be to somebody living in one of the villages that you know isn't out immersed in it all the time What was your feeling as to where our guests' ideas this week ended up on the Profit Wizard spectrum? Where do you, would you put some of their contributions and, and some of their comments? Would you say Stephanie was sort of in the middle of the Profit Wizard spectrum? She seemed to be really excited and energised having worked in this area for a long time and being you know, internationally regarded in it as to the potential of innovative designs of financial schemes. But at the same time, probably for the for the same reason she was also wanting to talk about the complexity of it so would you say she was somewhere in the middle yeah that's quite hard to say she described both the benefits and the challenges of the economic wizardry required to financially support farming with a natural capitals approach for now um, a natural capitals approach doesn't necessarily lead to green growth or to degrowth and then there was Louise from Capital's Coalition. She showed how natural capital can bring businessmen and bankers into the fold so that we can invent the sustainable ecosystems which mean life or death for biodiversity. To me, that sounded a little bit like wizardry. The natural capital's system, if really integrally applied to our economic systems, could be a form of solution. It could be like a economic engineering of our society. Then we had Tim Parikh who is almost the opposite. He's an economist, and yet he was almost our loudest prophet. What did you think about Tim's perspective there? Yeah, it was quite unusual to hear it from an economist. I mean, maybe it's just us stereotyping, but I just didn't think that an, an economist would ever tell us that economics has a role in valuing nature as a gift, or even thinking about nature as a fellow living being. Maybe his ultimate point was that the natural capitals approach could end up recreating a system where everyone just wants to capitalize on nature 
It was really interesting to delve into that word capital with him. Yeah, I think it was really interesting. It became quite clear listening to Louise and others talk about the different ways we can value nature financially, that doing that unavoidably connects us into culture, into politics, into everything else. It's unavoidable, really, when money is involved. And in the next episode, we're going to explore those other ways of valuing nature. And we've got some great conversations coming down the track with a historian of culture and spirituality, a legal expert, an organic farmer, all sorts of perspectives from all around the world and all sides of these questions. As always, dear listeners, if you're interested in finding out more about these questions or the work of our guests, please check out the show notes for links and resources. Thank you so much for being with us. Until next time. Our show is a podcast from Tascape Media, hosted by Alexandra George Pico, who's also an assistant producer, and Theodore Simmons, who produces and edits the series. The production assistant is me, Beatrix Keeler. Alistair Simmons is our executive producer. Our thanks to all who've been involved in making the show possible.